Well, right now, the right fielder, Michael Tucker, is 90 feet off the line. The outfield is shallow, way around the left. They're playing Omar as if he were a right-handed pull hitter. The 1-0 pitch. Swung on, hit down the right field line. Well hit, long run for Tucker. Leaps, this ball is... What is it? Did he catch it or is it gone? It is a home run! How about that? Into the Reds' bullpen. Tucker flat on his back. And a home run celebration. Hi, this is Emily Nyman, and you're listening to Breaking Balls. Welcome to episode 35 of Breaking Balls. I'm your host, Emily Nyman. I'm here with my co-host, John Snyder. You can find us on Twitter, at BreakBallsPod. Or, if you're feeling brassy, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. 631-820-7377. It's our Thanksgiving episode, everybody. We are thankful for a lot over here at Breaking Balls, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. I wish that there were some things that I could say I'm thankful for in Yankee land at this point in time, but nothing's been happening. DJ is still a free agent. I would imagine he's going to be for the remainder of the winter. The market moves pretty slow. Um, besides that, nothing, nothing's really rolling over in the Bronx. But uh, John, how about down in Queens? Anything that you're thankful for? Well, I just want to start. I'm glad that you didn't take that cheap cop out of like, well, I'm just thankful to be a Yankees fan. Like, yeah, okay. Um, Everyone listening knows that that's not true. I know, I know. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I do have some things to be thankful for in Queens. So uh, there was two really interesting interviews that went down this week. The first one I want to talk about is with our new owner, Uncle Stevie Cohen. So uh, he talked to uh, Steve Gelbs on SNY. It was nothing earth shattering, but it just continued the streak of nailing interviews like this guy does not miss. He's batting a thousand. And I can use that because he's a baseball owner now. So what's cool is uh, my, my big thing with him and he's he just keeps showing it is how much he values the fans being a fan himself. Uh, you know, talking to Galb is about how much he enjoys the interactions on Twitter. He's thinking about, you know, maybe getting those black uniforms back a couple weekends a year, which would be sick because I know some people hate him, but fuck it. I grew up in the 90s. I want that. He was uh, talking about what players they were interested in. He gave the exact answer you want to hear. He's not making promises, but he's like all those guys, you know, those four or five free agents that the fans are talking about. We're talking to all of them. And it's like that, this guy gets it, man. It's about the fans. It's about the product as a sport and as entertainment. And that's what he's doing. It's it's beautiful. Oh, speaking, I know I'm rambling here, right? I'm so excited. Speaking of interacting with the fans on Twitter, his sense of humor came out in spades because one of his very early things was uh, some guy, you know, just to say hi to him, was like, hey, Steve, I have the Buckner ball. Then he posted this pic, this ball that was signed by uh, Mookie Wilson and Bill Buckner. And Steve Cohen goes, oh, oh, that's that's very nice. You own the Buckner ball? Congratulations. So fast forward to today, Gelbs asked him, if there's one piece of Mets memorabilia you could own, what would you want it to be? And Cohen goes, actually, funny you should ask that. I'm going to step off camera for a second. And he goes, turns out he bought the real Buckner ball about like two years ago. <laughs> so this whole time he's had, he's like, yeah, you know, I was waiting for the right moment to come out with it. The, the, the guy is just does not miss. It's it's awesome. What, what a, I've said this before, but what a difference from what we were dealing with before. It's, it's so refreshing. 
And how much of a dick does that dude on Twitter feel like right now? Because he definitely was like, oh man, I bet you I'm going to fleece Steve Cohen and he's going to buy this ball from me. Well, that was my first reaction was I was like, oh shit, did he actually like contact that guy and buy the ball? But no, it turns out the real ball is not like signed and stuff. The guy just had an 86 ball that he was trying to put forward as it. That he fucking signed himself. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that was the first interview. Uh, the other one was a few days ago, and it was with Sandy Alderson, spoke to the uh, the New York uh, sports media. And uh, again, nothing earth shattering in the way of like announcing players or, you know, a GM or anything like that, but just some updates. So apparently they're no longer, he had said the original plan was, you know, Sandy is right underneath Steve Cohen. He wanted to hire a president of baseball operations who would then be in on the conversation to hire a GM. So dealing with, you know, like a business, tearing it. They're no longer doing that. They're no longer searching for a president of baseball operations. And I like how straightforward they were about it. They were like, hey, you know what? Some of the guys that we wanted, we couldn't talk to, or you know, we, we didn't see eye to eye with, and they're not gonna force it. So Sandy is going to fulfill those duties. And we all know from his time with the athletics and from the Mets, he's more than capable. So I'm thrilled with this decision. If you can't find someone that you want, let Sandy do it. If he's willing and he seems to be, absolutely. So that was the big one. They're no longer looking for a president of baseball operations. Notable in that, he said that they haven't hired a GM yet, but they've been speaking to people and they did not speak to Theo Epstein. Hmm, what do you make of that? I think that they absolutely did. And he told them that he was taking this year off. So that's who they're going to wait for. And by I think this, I've seen it a bunch of times online. So I'm not even going to try to pretend like I came up with this original thought. And I feel like it's a natural place to go that... They decided not to hire anybody after it was announced that Epstein was going to take the year off. Like, I feel like that's not a coincidence. You could very well be right to play devil's advocate on that. The other side is that Alderson did say that ideally they would hire a GM who would then grow into the president of baseball operations position and then hire his own GM. Could just be rhetoric. Who knows? And then the other side of it is that Theo Epstein, all reports are, wants not just to you know be managing a team he wants a financial stake and he wants like you know head honcho decision making capabilities i don't know either way if he would get that under cohen if that's something they could work out i mean he's a savvy businessman but i'm not going to pretend to know enough about that side of it uh so it could go either way but you know if, if anybody's a no-brainer gm it's epstein so and i suppose maybe it's possible because sandy alderson i'm actually not sure how old he is he just looks like an older gentleman he's like mid to late 70s i think for all we know, he could be a placeholder for Epstein. That it could be, hey, listen, I need somebody to be in here for a year. This guy, you know, Cohen's saying, this guy I want, he's taking a year off. Like, can you come in here? The the New York, the media knows you, the fans know you, the team knows you. So can you come in for a year and then just be a placeholder for Epstein? And so who knows? Could be, because when Sandy did the introductory press conference, he said he was only looking to do it for a couple of years. You know, maybe he wasn't late 70s. Maybe he was just mid 70s. Well, point being, you know, he's up there, so he's not going to do this forever. And he made that clear going into it. Uh, in that same interview, the other big piece of news that came out is he confirmed that Luis Rojas will be the manager. And it's worth noting he got the year right this time in 2021. He was immediately questioned. He's like, well, in the opening press conference, Sandy, you said that you wanted the input of the GM. Turns out that 
everyone that they've spoken to thus far uh, for a GM candidate has agreed that Rojas would be best to keep the position. He didn't really get a full audition in 2020. And, you know, uh, by all accounts, the clubhouse seems to love him. He seems to get along with the players really well. They like him. So it seems more than fair to give him a shot. And it seems like everybody in on those discussions was on the same page. So they decided to not delay, you know, let the players know who the skip is. You know, I think that kind of stability is good. So I was glad to hear that. And I like Louie. I'm excited to see it. It's pretty fucking weird for someone in the press corps to ask Sandy Alderson, who is has been a president of baseball operations and a GM, like, uh, you said that the GM was going to talk to you about hiring the manager, yeah. like, as if he doesn't know what he's doing. Like, I'm surprised he didn't answer, like, ask the GM. I am the GM. <laughs> Can I speak to the manager, please? <laughs> I am the manager, B. <laughs> and then just to wrap up that press conference, the other thing... I may have a little bit of egg on my face here, but I'm going to soldier through. I think I've kind of come around on the DH finally. I made it a point earlier this year that I didn't want it. I love National League ball, and I still do. You know, I, I, I'm not going to deny the exciting part of watching pitchers hit on the occasion that it works. Shut up, Emily. Um, <laughs> but... So Sandy said in the interview that he's hopeful, especially the way that the Mets are built, that they have a DH in the NL uh, next year. And I got to be honest, I I agree with him. And maybe, I don't know to what extent it has to do with just the structure of the Mets. You know, you can't have Pete and Dom both play first at the same time. But uh, I've come around. I I think I have. You know, he was even saying, he said in so many words, like, oh, you know, pitchers can't even bunt anymore. So you want the hitters hitting, right? It's like, yeah, eh, I guess so. You win. He's he should have said uh, sack bunting is pointless at this level and the pitchers were only able to kind of sack, sack bunt. So you do the transitive property there. Oh, yeah, you, you don't got, need sack bunting. You don't need the sack bunting specialists. You got to read through the line, Zemster. Speaking of DHs and John, I'm very happy to uh, see you come around on that one. I'm going to do a victory lap, maybe ticker tape parade. I'm not sure which, maybe both. Yeah, yeah. We can't compliment me for, like, admitting that I was wrong and changing my mind. No, no, no. Let's just say that Emily was right and move on. You have chosen wisely. Yeah, it's not so much that... Listen, you don't have to be wrong for me to be right. I could still be right, even if you are just kind of not right. Porque no los dos. (laughs) But speaking of the DH, it sparked an interesting conversation with John and I this week, and a lot of people for that matter, because obviously the Hall of Fame ballots are still very much a topic of conversation as there's not really much else to talk about in the baseball world at the moment. So there's an account on Twitter. It's at not Mr. Tibbs. It's a, a guy, a few, he and a few other guys, they collect the ballots and they let everyone know like who's lost votes, who gained votes, and we see the percentages for each of the induct or possible inductees as the months go on so some people choose to make their ballots public some don't the ones that are public always raise a very interesting now i was going to say this is actually just to interrupt you for a second interesting note on that i read somewhere that apparently the writers voted to make the ballots public but the executives kiboshed it so that's an interesting spin on that apparently the writers were generally okay with it and it was the hall who said no I got to double check that, but I read that. No, you're right about that because I actually saw that today too, like on Twitter. And at first I was like, oh my, that's weird. It seems weird to me. You know what I mean? That you think that none of these guys want their ballots public, but I guess they don't mind. But then on the other hand, I do kind of understand it because maybe the hall 
doesn't want everyone to know because they don't want them people like campaigning directly to voters. Oh, I guess so. But then like it was even weird, one of the ballots that he posted today, the, the writer had filled out the box that he didn't want it made public. And then the ballot is public. I, I, don't, I don't understand how it works. I really don't. And another quick thing that we learned last week. So anyone who heard last week's episode, John and I, we uh, started talking about the BBWAA or the as we like to call it. We weren't sure how long someone has voting rights for. Like our, we assumed that it was active uh, writers because that makes most sense. Turns out that you can retire from being a sports writer and still have a vote for 10 years as long as you remain a member. And on one hand, I can understand it because the assumption is that, hey, this guy, these writers, they watched the entire career of other of players who are now retiring around the same time as them. So they should be voting up, blah, blah, blah. I get that. But isn't the whole point that it's only writers because you want to make sure the voters are people that are paying attention and are as unbiased as a human can possibly be, and you assume that that is someone who covers this for a living. They're not as invested emotionally as fans are. But when you then remove that, and now just some guy who was a writer fucking 10 years ago or five years ago can just throw a ballot in without having to pay attention to shit, he may not even watch baseball anymore because it was his job. So he may, he may not even enjoy it and watch it that much, but now he's got to vote and he can vote however he wants. And I just think that's a little weird. If, might as well let anyone vote. Why is it just writers then? See, like, I, I can understand the logic behind extending it a little bit beyond your writing career, but 10 years is a lot, man. Like, I'm, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Like, you could, in theory, be voting on a player where you missed his entire peak or his entire prime when you're dealing with 10 years, you know? Not everybody sticks around and lingers forever after their prime, you know what I'm saying? So it, it's... Is this? Is, I don't know if this is better or worse. We made the comparison to Supreme Court justices last week. I don't know if this is better or worse. It's like, can they, and now, you know what? No, I'm not even going to go there. I'm just picturing like, is it 10 years? Like, even if you die, like then your widow gets the ballot and like your kids get the ballot. You just keep filling it out. Where does it end? And another an interesting thing that I've seen in the pattern of votes, and obviously I'm not seeing all the votes or all the ballots rather like this guy is or even the hall. Something that's strange, and, and I can't help but feel this way, and people would have a very hard time convincing me otherwise. Writers, they can morally posture as much as they want, and I'm not going to go too deep into this because we already did it last episode. They can morally posture about PEDs and whatever else, but the reality is there always ends up being some inconsistency there. They'll vote for somebody who has used or was rumored to have used or named in the Mitchell Report or whatever else. Some of them are already in, but... What it boils down to is petty revenge, I think. I can't help but feel that there are writers who have the last laugh, so to speak, with this vote, right? That they have guys like Bonds and guys like Clemens and and any other, name any other player, Gary Sheffield or whoever else, players that were not exactly known for being cordial to the press and were, uh, as far as being rude and dismissive of them, I think that this is some like, fine, you want to fucking be a dick to me for your whole career? Well, guess what? I hold the keys to this. What petty bullshit, too. It's like, yeah, you may have won the adulation of millions and millions of dollars at that, but you'll never get in the hall. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> because today, and I was thinking about this hardcore today, because one of the ballots that was originally posted by this guy, Ryan, on Twitter, but then it was deleted. We realized when we went to recall it, but luckily we were able to grab a screenshot. 
Might be the worst fucking Hall of Fame ballot I've ever seen. Good God. It's atrocious. So the votes, and real quick, the votes are for... Tory Hunter, Andrew Jones, Andy Pettit, Aramis Ramirez, Manny Ramirez, Scott Rowland, Omar Vizquel, and Billy Wagner. Where do we even begin here? I mean, and how this ties into what I was just saying is that notice that there's a vote for Manny Ramirez and Andy Pettit on there. Both of them. I mean, Manny, he failed two drug tests throughout his career for PEDs. And PE, I just almost called him PED. PED Pettit, as he's referred to. Andy Pettit. (laughs) Andy Pettit. Like we mentioned last week that he's the guy who, you know, he confessed, quote unquote, not until he was named in the Mitchell report. And this is always the funny thing. And people who are listening, if you fall into this category, I don't apologize. Please rethink it. <laughs> Anytime Andy Pettit and PEDs get brought up, someone always has to say like, oh, well, he, he only used HGH that one time and he did it for recovery. And first of all, who cares what he did it for? That's an arbitrary, they're all doing it for some positive reason in the reality. They're either doing it to recover, they're doing it to play better, they're doing it to play better and make more money. That's the whole point. It has nothing but positive outcomes. So saying that he only did it for a positive outcome does not excuse the PED use or make it any less illegal to the game than anyone else who did it. You can't qualify it on that level, and I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure I'm giving the proper shout out here. I think it was Max who I saw on Twitter today. He said something to the effect of like, "Just be consistent." You know, you want to vote. You know, uh, what did he say? Small Hall of Fame. Like, you want to vote. You know, if you have your thing, even if it's an empty ballot, okay. But if you're gonna vote for one of the guys that did steroids, you gotta vote for all of them. You know, you can't do like, yeah, okay, Manny, but not Bonds and not Clements. What the fuck are you doing? What kind of lines are these? Like you shouldn't have your ballot should not need all these asterisks and footnotes and stuff like that. The logic should be clearly available to you when you see it. Like, oh, okay, this is what this guy, you know, this is what this guy thinks. This is his philosophy. Everything lines up with that. One comment I saw I really liked is one person said that they wanted to remove the anonymity of the ballots purely so that they could match it up to the writing of whoever voted. Just to see how it lines up. Like what kind of takes are these people giving us? We have no idea. I would go as far as saying that I think that the writers should have to explain why they're voting for somebody. What's the reason that you're voting for this person? Especially when it's somebody that is a borderline. And there are clear borderlines that are on these ballots. It's not like the shoe-ins. And that's why this year is interesting, right? Because there are no shoe-ins. It's all borderline guys and PED guys. Well... We want to talk borderline. I know that you in particular have noticed one borderline guy on the majority of these ballots, and uh, you've been vocal about it, to say the least. The man he is referring to is none other than... Drumroll, please. Alleged defensive whiz, Omar Vizquel. <laughs> Just kidding. His defense is not alleged, but everything else is sus. I mean, saying he's borderline is honestly being generous, because... I've now been obsessing over his stats and looking, combing through the stats for Omar Vizquel. 
my house practically looks like from that scene from It's Always Sunny with Charlie when he's working in the mailroom and he's got all the fucking strings attached and Pepe Silva and all the mail. Go- <laughs> okay, Charlie, I'm going to have to stop you right there. Not only do all of these people exist, but they have been asking for their mail on a daily basis. It's all they're talking about up there. Jesus Christ, dude, we are going to lose our jobs. Everybody has been looking for their mail, Charlie. That's basically me with this. Because I don't, I honestly don't even know where to begin. What is always sold to us with Omar Vizquel is his defense. And and I'm not trying to take anything away from this defensive whiz, but I don't understand why. And it seems to only be with him. Because even the the excuse he's used like, oh, well, uh, Ozzy Smith is in. And it's like, first of all, Ozzy and Omar were nowhere near each other defensively. First of all, Ozzy Smith would have gotten in just for his pregame backflips. Thank you very much. Honestly, I mean, I was actually thinking that when people were like using it as a comparison. I was like, yeah, well, can Omar do a fucking backflip standing up? (laughs) Yeah, well, what kind of standards are we talking here? But even when you look at, and obviously Ozzy was basically a purely defensive, and I'm pretty sure he had like maybe, he had a bunch of stolen bases too. So when he would get on base, he would uh, make a little bit of noise. But when you compare him to Vizquel, Vizquel's offense was so atrocious, and this was How wasn't even- atrocious was it? This is so embarrassing. And I even felt comfortable using his full career numbers, because usually, to be fair, when you're comparing players and talking about them, you don't use their career numbers because there's obvious decline in baseball. So you could have, especially if Vizquel played for 24 seasons, you potentially could have an entire decade of decline. That did not happen with Omar. So sure, one check for consistency, but that consistency was consistently terrible. And can I also add, I get a kick out of these people who like, that's the crux of their argument, is that he played in the league for 23 years, therefore he must be a good hitter. That's not even kind of how that works. And people kept on comparing it to regular people. Like, well, he's a better hitter than <laughs> me and you. And it's like, all right, well, that's never the fucking question. Of yeah, course you know he who is. Else, you know who else was a better hitter? Every major leaguer ever. Every minor leaguer ever. Like, how big do you want to make this list? Good God. And it's so funny because another thing, because with compilers, the thing is, is that it's not as impressive now. And I'm not trying to say it's not impressive. Obviously, to amass 3,000 hits or 3,000 strikeouts or whatever, you have to be in the game for a long time. And that's sort of like the gold watch that they give you, I guess. It's an accomplishment in and of itself, for sure, for sure. With Vizquel, I'm sure, you know, I'm leading everyone here that you're probably thinking, oh, what's next, that he hit 3,000 hits? No, he didn't even hit 3,000 hits. He had 2,877 hits, and people have been saying, well, he almost hit 3,000. And it's like, okay, now we're at... The bar gets lower and lower, yeah. Yeah, Ozzy Smith is in. That was the first bar, even though it didn't mean anything. Now it's, he almost has 3,000 hits. Right. And he also, people are like, well, he had 400 stolen bases. Okay. He also got caught stealing a lot. So his success rate was only 70%, which is not very good. So now we've taken that away. And his on-base percentage was garbage. It was below average. So he's not even getting on base. The only thing that people have for him is his batting average, which was a, a healthy... 271, which is pretty good, but his on base was like 330. So that means for a lot of his plate appearances, he's not getting on base. So who gives a shit that he was getting on 0.271 times out of all of his at bats when he couldn't walk? 
he's just either hitting a fucking weak single or not doing anything. Yeah, I mean, it comes back to not all hits are created equal, and it depends what stats you want to look at in this case, you know? A 270 batting average in a vacuum, we know now that it doesn't tell us as much as it used to tell us, you know? And I mean, the, the big thing, uh, what were some other ones we compared him to? Because I know like the obvious, like the classic example for, hey, he's in the hall because of his defense is Brooks Robinson, right? First off, Vizquel was a great defender, but Brooks Robinson, he wasn't. Let's get that out of the way first, right? But I liked your comparison with him and, um, what was it, uh, Ripken. I got a kick out of that one because that was another one where, okay, you want to you wanna talk about longevity. Ripken had the streak. Right. So, I mean, he might have gotten just on that, but and I'll let you take it from here. And I was actually surprised. So in my my quest to eviscerate Omar Vizquel's chances of the Hall of Fame, I naturally went into look Cal Ripken Jr. And I was surprised to learn that Ripken was a little more inconsistent at the plate throughout the course of his career than I assumed he was. He wasn't even... Like, he would go have a 700 OPS, then he'd go up to 900, then it dropped to 800, then to 700, then to 900. And that basically followed a pattern over the course of his career. But he was still light years better than Vizquel at the plate. And even defensively, it turns out, because I know defensive metrics are a bit of a, a hot button issue because they're difficult to understand. But in this case, there is a stat on Fangraphs called DEF. It's a cumulative stat, much like war, but it's for defense. And in the top 10 of the last 40 years, Vizquel's there. He's at eight or nine. But Ripken is in either the two or the three slot. And he's got like over 100 points more DEF than Vizquel. And I brought this up to some people and they could not believe it. So they were going as far as to say like, no, there's no way. I just don't, you know, Vizquel was a, a magician. And mind you, the vast majority of people I'm having these conversations with I just sounded like A-Rod when I said that. That wasn't on purpose. <laughs> Do not take that out, DJ Bingington. Oakley Dougley. The vast majority of people that I have these discussions with online are Yankee fans, and most of them live in the tri-state area and where I live and whatever. The reason this is important is because a lot of them are the ones that are telling me I wasn't around to see Vizquel play or I don't remember. He was great. And it dawned on me that in 1997... When he was in his prime those years, there was no MLB TV. None of you were watching Vizquel either. <laughs> they were watching him the six times a year they played the Yankees. Yeah, or watching him on fucking ESPN's, you know, Web Gems or whatever. And you all know how I feel about eye tests. I, I don't think it's a tool that can be used or relied on whatsoever. But even if we say, okay, let's for a, a minute pretend... None of you were watching Vizquel play. You were watching him make plays on highlight reels. And you've now, your memory has now decided that he was the best ever because of that. And he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. But he is like the poster child. Well, not even. There's more than him. But he is a, po he is a candidate for Hall of Very Good, 100%. And I mean, we've also talked about how he's kind of... Maybe old-fashioned isn't the right word. Maybe it is the right word. He's kind of an old-school shortstop, you know? We talked about, like, Ripken and uh, and Jeter were guys where it was kind of like the beginning of the turning point, where it's like, you know, back in the day, you look at uh, a Brooks Robinson type, right, where it's all defense and no batting. That was acceptable for a shortstop. Ripken was the beginning of that not being acceptable. And granted, Omar started his career after Ripken, right? Yeah, he's a little bit younger than Ripken. Yeah, that's what I thought. 
So I think he kind of benefited from being kind of in that transition period when he started. So he could still, you know, by old school scouts being like, oh, this is what you want in a shortstop. You know, he's a defensive wizard, blah, 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 blah. I think he really benefited from that, you know? Without question. And the the rebuttal to that is he didn't play during the times of Brooks Robinson. Yeah, he was a mo- he, he retired in 2012. He's a modern player. Yeah, he's on the ballot now. The real ballot, not the fucking veteran committee ballot. Right. So <laughs> why are we comparing him to like Pee Wee Reese and shit from the 1950s? Like he is a modern player and he should be held to the modern standards. And those standards are the shortstop position. Sure, they're, they don't have to be your best hitter, but like John said, we no longer have to totally sacrifice offense at that position. You can still hit a little bit and now shortstops do. He didn't at all. And what I found interesting is that someone on his own team during his prime when he was on the Indians, quick aside, he was never even close to their highest paid player throughout his entire career. He averaged $3 million per year. So how good could he have possibly been? But I digress. Kenny Lofton was on his teams in the 90s. And talk about Hall of Famer. He is a legit borderline Hall of Famer. So the fact that Kenny Lofton fell off like the first ballot with didn't make the votes and Omar Vizquel is still hanging on. I honestly cannot understand it. If anyone listening can call in and wants to defend Vizquel and and his bid for the Hall of Fame, please, I beg of you, 631-820-7377. I need to hear something besides what I've been hearing because what I've been hearing so far, it doesn't hold any weight whatsoever. It's purely just my brain remembers this guy. I want him in the Hall of Fame and that's it. And on that note, we are going to get into the voicemails. Our first voicemail is from Michael, the food guy. It's Michael, the food guy. And I can't even, I had to pause the episode listening to these voicemails this week. Let's go through Boobach, I apologize. I, you know, I'll call you Boobach from now on. The candy, you're dead wrong. Candy's what, you know, everybody's going to be different. I put a post up not too long ago about what's your favorite candy. There's 9,000 different uh things that people picked, man. Candy's whatever you had as a kid. I was a Reese Cup kid. You know, they're like nine or ten on my list now. There's so many things better than that because they invented so many other things, including those Reese sticks. And I wanted to give a shout-out to DJ Bitchington because he killed it with the inserts on uh, Nick's calling. I really wish he would have hit him with the everything that guy just said is bullshit, but he did a fantastic job shredding it, man. Uh, Make a road trip, enjoying the music. Thank you, guys. You're my favorite two Utes in podcast. Did you say Utes? Yeah, two Utes. What is a Ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two Utes. Yet again, another W for me in this episode. First, it was John coming around on the DH, and now it's the food guy agreeing with me about Reese's Sticks being the best fucking candy in the entire world. Hey, hey, I'm vindicated, too. He was defending Bubak, criticizing my candy choices. That's true. And also, thank you for only calling him Bubak from now on, Michael, because you calling him Nick, I then called him Nick later on in the episode, not even meaning to. (laughs) As always, thank you so much for your call. Our next voicemail is from Mike. Hey, guys, this is uh, at Mike B underscore nine two three on Twitter. And my question to you guys is about the Hall of Fame. Uh, two candidates I find very interesting that I think are going to finish one and two in the order on the ballots, maybe not get in, maybe they will get in, are uh, Kurt Schilling and Omar Vizquel. So there's 
debates on why each of these guys should be or should not be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, let me ask you this. If you had to pick one of two to go in the Hall of Fame, who would, which of the two would you pick? And you had to choose one. Thank you. So, Em, we actually haven't talked about this in a while. Uh, what are your feelings on Omar Vizquel? Mike, this is the first time you've called into this show and you've presented me with a, a Sophie's Choice of sorts. Obviously, the no-brainer, Vizquel. I have to totally backtrack on everything I just said. I was going to say, Sophie's Choice is kind of appropriate, being that Schilling is basically a Nazi. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with Omar Vizquel by a long shot in that case. Yeah, I mean, compared to how much I want Schilling in, Vizquel is like fucking questioning, do we want Babe Ruth in this Hall of Fame or not? <laughs> right, well, it's one of those things where, you know, character is an element on the ballot. It, you know, it, officially, it's an element on the ballot. And in a normal case, it's not going to win or lose our guy the Hall of Fame. But Kurt Schilling is not a normal case. He's a piece of shit, racist, Nazi, like, yeah, no, fuck that guy. Absolutely not. So, welcome to the hall, Omar. Yeah, full circle, I guess he's in. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much for your call. And our next call is from Emmy. Hey, Em, it's the other Em, Mrs. Steelier Bass. I just listened to the newest episode, and I had to chime in because when you guys started talking about Cooperstown, I started getting all depressed again because, as you know, my love for Jeter is like your love for A-Rod. Me and my brother planned our trip to Cooperstown the day Derek Jeter announced his retirement because we knew, of course, like everyone else, he would be first-round ballot. We were very, 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 very much looking forward to it this summer. Obviously, COVID decided it had other plans like it did with everyone else this summer. Fine. The other person who was inducted in was Larry Walker. I love baseball. I've loved baseball my whole life. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I knew who the fuck Larry Walker was before um, I watched who got inducted. I mean, cool for him. I think he's from Canada. Don't really know. Played on the Rockies. It was his last chance to get in. They let him get in like woohoo. We were all there to see Jeter. Me and my brother were super excited because if you remember when Mo got inducted, I think his class was like six or seven people. So I sat there and watched on TV that entire ceremony and it took 18 fucking hours, and of course I put Mo last because everyone wanted to hear what he had to say. And I was so excited that Jeter got in with one other schmo. I would have to listen to one speech and then dedicate the entire rest of the day to staring at Derek Jeter. My first thought when all of this got canceled was, great, now we're going to have to sit there with 2021's class as well when all of them go through their speeches because you know they're still going to put Jeter less. Like, there's been rumors that he's going to be on a different day, but as far as MLB's website and Cooperstown's website, they are being inducted the same day as the 2021 class in July. So my biggest gripe with all this is if Kurt Schilling finally gets in and I have to sit through that asshole's speech, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I better be allowed to bring booze onto that field. Thank you for letting me vent about Jeter. I still can't wait to go, and I hope you guys go. It'd be cool to hang out with you. Love you. Bye. If they combine the years, and let's say there are a few guys that get in this year, which I don't think there will be, but in that case, I don't know. I would love to go to Jeter's induction, but I don't know if I will because we... So I've mentioned this in the past. John 
DJ Bingington and myself, we went up to the induction in 2016 with uh, Griffey and Piazza. Place was jammed. I mean, it that's a huge induction weekend because those are two oh, yeah. somebody's. Generational talents, yeah. And Piazza's a New York guy, played for the Mets, so and he went in as a Met. So the place was jammed. It was a great weekend. It was hot as fuck. But <laughs> I cannot imagine sitting in that field for more than two people because first of all, to get a spot, you have to set up your chairs overnight, which we did not bring with us. We sat yeah, on the grass. Didn't get that memo. We sat there and we got there early in the morning. Friends of ours were there and, and they saved us a, a spot of uh, dirt next to their chairs that we sat in. We were there for like eight hours before the actual ceremony began. And while their speeches were really beautiful, Piazza, Piazza Piazza's was really, really beautiful. At that point, I was almost delirious from the heat because we had just been sitting in the unrelenting sun for hours. It's also worth noting that they were playing Abbott and Costello's Who's on First Routine over and over and over and over and over. If anyone from the Baseball Hall of Fame induction weekend planning committee is listening to this episode, can you please make that looped video (laughs) at least more than 30 minutes long? Because you know damn well we're all sitting there for fucking half a day. God, if you listen, hell! God, if you're listening, help! <laughs> Emmy, thank you so much for your call. And thank you to all our callers. A perfect week for that, our Thanksgiving episode. We're always thankful each week, but because it's Thanksgiving, we just want to say thankful to everyone who's ever called this show. When I first decided to get a number, DJ Bingington convinced me when we first started the show, and I was embarrassed too. I was like, what if nobody calls? I'm embarrassed to say a phone number, and then what if people are going to laugh? And you guys have just totally made me look silly, even thinking that. We love you guys so much and are just so thankful for the engagement and, and listening and, and making us a part of your week every single week. And much to that end... Our top three this week is things that we are thankful for. So, John, you want to kick us off? I'm thankful for Brody Van Wagenen. Why is that? Oh, no, really. He actually interviewed Tony LaRusa for the uh, manager job, and he said no. So, you know, stop clock twice a day type thing. I'll take it. Before I get into my number three, something that I am super thankful for is John, my co-host, his amazing musical talent. And if you guys didn't catch it, Last week's episode was called Oops, He Did It Again, a play on the famous Britney Spears song, Oops, I Did It Again, about Robinson Cano. And John made up his own lyrics, and it's fucking hilarious. If you haven't checked it out, you should. It's on our Twitter page. Well, to be fair, you gave me full credit for it. You wrote the first chorus. You inspired me when you posted it. You changed the lyrics, and then I just did the rest of it. It was a collab, just like this entire podcast. That's what I'm saying. Collaborative effort. So what are you really thankful for? What I'm really thankful for. Wow, you weren't really thankful for my video? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Got her. I'm actually thankful, and this is going to sound crazy, but I'm really thankful that Tanaka got lit up in that game against the Indians in this year's playoffs because that was a fucking classic game. If Tanaka had been lights out, that would have been great too, but it would not have been what that slugfest was. Back and forth, right down to the last inning, the Yankees won 10-9. All right, good one. I'm thankful that Robinson Cano took steroids to end his career. No, no, really I am. I mean, think about it. He was fun to watch in 2020. It was like, oh, what a pleasant surprise. And then it turned out he was doing steroids. It's like, oh, 
that makes sense. And now we have $24 extra million dollars to play with. Jeff McNeil can finally play second base and we don't have to deal with him this year. So I'm actually pretty glad that he juiced. That worked out all around. I am very thankful, very, very thankful for all the Stanton haters out there. The consistent hate of this Hall of Fame track player has been atrocious. But then when he turned around this postseason, he absolutely lit it up and was hitting like Stanton hits. It made it that much sweeter. Just shitting on all the haters that have said nothing but bullshit about him since he came to this team. How do you like him now? So before I, I get to my last one, what, you know, we're, we're obviously doing semi-sarcastic, you know, what we're thankful for is, but if I could be so real us. for a second, I'd so us, if I could be real for a second, I am very genuinely thankful for you and DJ Bindington and this podcast. And, you know, I mean, it's, just, it's been a tough year all around for all of us. And, you know, you said before, I'm a professional musician. I have no gigs right now. My band fell apart with COVID and everything. So this for even beyond just a creative outlet, it's fantastic. So thank you to all you guys for this and for all you listeners out there. I'm also thankful for the Wilpons. <laughs> Can you believe I just said that shit? Yeah. No, I am thankful for the Wilpons for being shady, incompetent, asshole criminals that fell for Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. Actually, I should rephrase that. They knew what they were doing the whole time. They were friends with him. So they lost all that money in the Ponzi scheme. Then COVID hits. They're forced to sell the team. And full circle, here we are with Steve goddamn Cohen owning the team. And it's a beautiful sight. So thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Fred. Please let the door hit you on the way out. Now my number one is way worse than that. Not even in a good way. We should have ended with that, but we'll end with this. My number one is the fact that Manny Machado did not sign with the Yankees. I know that sounds crazy because I absolutely love Manny Machado and I was fucking very upset when they signed DJ LeMahieu, but not signing Machado meant that LeMahieu came to the Yankees and it's worked out and I'm the one with egg on my face because now I'm over here fucking begging for them to re-sign him. So thank you, Machado, for going elsewhere. That about wraps it up for Breaking Balls this week. We hope all of you listening had a wonderful Thanksgiving, whether you were doing it virtually or in person. And... Like John said and I said earlier, we honestly, from the bottom of our hearts, we cannot thank all of you enough for supporting us and listening to us and engaging with us, leaving voicemails, tweeting at us, sharing our tweets and just being there since the start. We're very thankful here. We're very thankful for our amazing producer and engineer, DJ Bingington. You can find him on Twitter at DJ B-I-N-G-I-N-G-T-O-N. You, of course, can find us on Twitter as well at BreakBallsPod. And if you're feeling brassy or feeling thankful, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. 631-820-7377. And we will catch you guys next week.